0: Good evening and welcome to the Classroom Critics, the podcast about film by three teachers who probably should have majored in film, although (laughs) life took us elsewhere. Um, We're happy to have you with us once again. Uh, Tonight, we're taking yet another diversion uh, into genre film. Um, We're doing what I suppose is called a horror-slash-thriller film, but it really is much more than that. And of course, we're talking about 2017's Get Out, written and directed by Jordan Peele, um, starring Daniel Kaluuya as Chris Washington, and I have to check my cheat sheet here. Allison Williams as Rose Armitage, Katherine Kinnear as Missy Armitage, Bradley Whitford as Dean Armitage, Caleb Landry Jones as Jeremy Armitage, Marcus Henderson as Walter, Betty Gabriel as Georgina, Lakeith Stanfield as Andre Logan King, Stephen Root as Jim Hudson, Lil Rel Howey as Rod Williams, Ashley LeConte Campbell as Lisa Dietz, and several others. So this is a film, uh, it's a, uh, the first feature film by Jordan Peele, and, and many of us know Jordan Peele as the half of that comedy duo, uh, Key and Peele. And I think this film, if I remember correctly, really took a lot of people um, off guard. This wasn't a comedy that he was doing, this was a, quite a departure from that. And um, it really, really is a powerful film. Uh, we've, we've watched it a couple of times now, and, and it's one of those films, I think, um, that absolutely warrants um, more than one viewing. Uh, I know that on my second viewing, and I've only seen it twice, um, I saw quite a bit more than, than, than I saw the first time. Um, it really isn't a horror film in that traditional sense. Um, there are very few uh, scare tactics in the sense of jump scares or anything like that. It's much more psychological, it seems to me, than, than anything else. Um, but perhaps more than anything else, it's, it's really about race uh, and race relations, I think, and some of the things that are happening um, in this country now, obviously, but also historically, some of the things that have been happening. So. I think that Jordan Peele takes a really interesting perspective on that, um, you know, couching it in this kind of horror genre that isn't really horror, but something a little bit more. So um, I'm joined tonight, I neglected to say, as always by my friends and colleagues, Bill Ivers and Walter Freeman, as usual. So tonight again we're talking about 2017 Universal Pictures Get Out written and directed by Jordan Peele. So um I would really like to talk about that first scene um uh, because it it struck me really really as a powerful um way to get into the film. But I wondered if you if you two would say a few words about your your general impression of the
1: film um off the bat. Well, I got to say um it's you know unique in every way for me, you know, that's one of the things I, I, I took away. I've seen it twice. The first time I watched it, I think I experienced it differently on a couple levels. Um, number one, um, I saw this, I think about a, a year ago, maybe, or, or maybe less. And then uh, I watched it again quite recently. And, you know, I just think no matter when I've seen it, you know, on two occasions, I think you know, t- taking something away differently each time, but I think just the climate and, and all the events that have transpired it it, um, it allowed me to see things differently in this particular film um, during the second viewing. But I guess we'll get to that. But I guess it's its unique qualities for me were, were just some of the uh, takeaways for me, just a very interesting, unique, fresh way to tell tell a story. Yeah. And it threw me off guard. Um, I found that unpredictable on many levels. I, I just think, uh, you know, we can get into the specifics, but um, I just think as you said, Andrew, it's it, it takes this horror approach in a very um, just, just unique way. Mm-hmm. Um, at, you know, at first, you know, the, you obviously the opening scene, which you just mentioned, it, it sort of sets the stage, but I think quick, I quickly forgot almost about that scene. Yeah. Once we, once we got into, and then you sort of like get into this mode, oh, what is, what is this, a romantic, con- I, but by the way, I, my first time viewing this, I knew almost nothing about it mm-hmm. at all. Um, and so <laughs> once that opening scene was sort of, uh, you know, kind of pushed to the side a little bit, and then I got, you know, you get into the, the world of this couple. Um, you know, as you do when, when you watch a film, you sort of maybe forget a previous scene, even though it might have been completely gripping in every way. I, I, I just sort of got sucked into this world of this couple. And, and and so you sort of say to yourself, what are we, is this some sort of romantic comedy or, or drama? What is this? And then it doesn't take long before you start feeling that things are just amiss here and it really just grips you into this um just, just this odd world obviously that gets even more odd as we go so um i'll get more into specifics as we go but i just uh the, the two different viewings were just very different experiences for various reasons and um uh for me unique is one of the uh the takeaways for me
2: great walter i just uh so you know Jordan Peele is, is part of a comedy duo, Key and Peele, as you said, and, and they're, they're, some of their comedy is just outstanding. Yeah. But he steps out of nowhere to write and direct a film that is so compelling and so assured. I mean, this is, this did not seem like a first-time director's film to me. I mean, right. everything from the pacing to the brilliance of the writing— I, you know you couldn't stop watching and again like you said it's not a, a jump in your face or not a lot of scare tactic horror film it's more one that it builds up with this creeping sense of dread mm-hmm. and the characters and, and all are so compelling and everything that they plant early on pays off later on in the film including as bill said a scene that you kind of forget as you get caught yeah. up as you go but as i watched this film it occurred to me okay on one hand here's this guy coming out of left field. To write and direct a film as, as confident and assured as this. And then I thought to myself, but you know what? How many comedians have we covered in this film podcast that are, that are great directors? You know, right. Chaplin and Keaton. Yeah. And if you even look at uh, uh, Stan Laurel from, from Laurel and Hardy, and, and I, you know, many, many more. And I'm just wondering if comedians don't, in some way, have their finger on the pulse of humanity in a way that other people don't. And when they decide to step out of uh, their familiar genre roles, they really surprise us. I mean, you know, Robin Williams, you know, could could do, you know, at a wide range as well. And so as I watched this film, I was just blown away by how complete of a film it was in, in, in all senses. I mean, I look back and I, I, I have one minor thing that bugs me about the film, but other than that, just a, a terrific accomplishment. And so, um, you know, again, I, I think we have to maybe take a look at comedians who step behind the camera. And, and maybe
1: maybe, the, maybe that answers the question that, you know, is life mainly a uh, tragedy or a comedy? <laughs> Perhaps it's a comedy. when yeah. <laughs> It's all said and done. And we
0: certainly seem to take seriously uh, or more seriously uh, drama and tragedy rather than comedy. And, and as you pointed out, both of you pointed out, comedy is deadly serious at times. And, and I think you've you, you picked up on something, Walter, that's really, really important. You know, if you, if you read King Lear, the fool is arguably the, 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 the smartest person in the room in every scene. And I think that comedians by and large really do have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in society. I go all the way back to Lenny Bruce and, and Richard Pryor and George Carlin and, and a host of others. And, and of course we'd be remiss if we're talking about comedians in this sense without mentioning Dave Chappelle. Uh, or, or, okay. or anyone like that. So I, I do Richard think Pryor, that Richard Pry. we, we yeah. sort of, we don't tend to take comedy as seriously as we should. The ancients of course did, um, yeah. but we don't take it as nearly as seriously.
2: When you think about when, when's the last comedy that wins uh, right. the best picture. Um, and it's just astonishing. But the other thing about it is, that, you know, comedy aside, and there are some moments that make you laugh in this film. Sure. This film has something on its mind other than to scare you or startle you or to titillate you. This, this is a serious commentary on race in america today and um but it doesn't put it forefront it's just overriding you know i'm going to segue back to that opening scene um you know if i'm walking down the street by myself and there's a car behind me that passes maybe once or twice too much you know i'm going to be on edge yeah but i'm likely not going to be thinking i'm not coming out of this encounter but 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 for, for this guy in a neighborhood where he clearly feels already that he's not comfortable in to have that happen, he knows that, that something is happening and um, that sense right there is built up, that yeah. sense of dread that, you know, is, is so many levels above just an unusual occurrence. But I'll tell but, you what,
1: though, um, the way he plays it and the way it's directed, it almost seems as though this is not the first time that's hap- that this has happened to him. Right. And that it's somewhat almost a, a routine. He knew exactly he, in his mind, he knew this is what I do when this happens. How, however uh, it didn't end, obviously hmm. how, how it right. Physically...
2: There, there's a beautiful detail in that scene. If you watch it, cause this is one of those films and I, I believe I can't remember one of you guys said it, you watch it repeatedly, mm-hmm. you know, it's like those films, you know, there are films that have a surprise to them and, and that's it. The, the film is over. There's other films, you know, I'll cite like the Sixth Sense or whatever. You can watch again uh, North by Northwest, yeah. other films. You can watch again and see the, the layers of the onion unpeeling. It's just as compelling, you know, three mm-hmm. or four yeah. or five times in. And so in that opening scene, you don't notice it. But when the car drives by, the radio is playing music from the 1930s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I did uh, notice
0: that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I, I think that that's very perceptive of you. So for those of you who, who haven't seen the film, which is probably three people in the, in, in the, on the planet, you know that opening sequence is, is we have a lone adult black male who's walking down the street, um, a suburban street with well-manicured lawns, nice lighting, cars parked onto, the, all nice cars parked on the side of the road. He's talking on his cell phone to somebody. It's, it's never, you know, we're never sure who exactly he's talking to. Uh, And this, I think it was a white car, a white sports car, sort of is is going the opposite way, slows down kind of looks at them, turns around and and begins to follow him. And one thing that I noticed early on was, uh, you know, he is, as you quite rightly pointed out, he's getting more nervous. And at one point, I think he says, not today. He wasn't going to let this, this, whatever, the bad thing that's going to happen, happen today. And then a couple of moments later, we see this, this mass figure get out of the white car and, and abduct. Um, this particular gentleman. And then uh, I think, Bill, your point is really, really well taken. We jump to this, you know, could be a romantic comedy uh,
1: after that. So it really is this kind of prelude that's happening. But I think it's an important scene too, because, you know, like with comedies, like let's say a full-blown comedy, you have to give the audience permission to laugh, uh, you know, yeah. right away. Uh, I guess in, a, in another sense, this, is, this prevents the horror and the, and the horrible things that happen, later on right to not just sort of come out of left field so even though we might forget about the scene a little bit it's still within our our it's in our heads um and it sort of sets the tone that okay um this 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 story is going to have some uh, horrible things that happen you might forget momentarily but you'll remember oh yeah right
2: um, and, and it pays off beautifully down the road absolutely
0: I, I, what I really like about this scene and why I wanted to mention it right off the bat is I love the juxtaposition, right? And what Peel does really, really brilliantly, I think, is he turns the tables. And, and here we have, you know, we have a person who is historically seen as a threat, right? This, this lone black person walking down, a black male walking down um, what I can only think of as a white suburban street. Um, and yet he's the one in danger. Uh, And, you know, the juxtaposition of that danger with the well-manicured lawns, and and we don't necessarily think about that. This really made me think about the idea of white privilege and and what that is. It's a term that I've been uncomfortable with for a long time, but I really started to get it. Um, You know, a, a couple of months ago, I went to the Italian embassy in Washington, D.C., so I got off the metro at DuPont Square, and I actually just walked up what they call embassy row. Um, where all of the embassies are sitting. So I'm walking up to the Italian embassy, which is about a mile and a half. And, you know, I never even thought about it. But yet if I was a person of color, especially a male, my experience probably would have been vastly different.
1: Right, exactly. No, that's right on. That's right on. And, it, and again, this, having watched it more recently, um, again, I just, I just saw so much in there that um, I might've missed the first time around. Yeah. But um, I, I always think that there's, I think with a lot of great horror films or thriller films, it's, it almost, there is a comedic um, vibe or thread or flavoring throughout a lot of these great, even Psycho, you know, even The Shining. Maybe not so much with uh, the extras that we reviewed recently, right. but I, I think with a lot of great horror, there, there is, especially with like some of Hitchcock's, there, there is a little bit of, uh, there, there are moments that are tongue in cheek and, yeah. and it, it, sometimes the absurdity of it is borderline comedic. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes, you know, and obviously the background, the comedic background of, our, of the director and writer obviously p- plays into that. But I mean, what an interesting setting though
0: mm-hmm.
1: for a horror film, right? We're not in the typical horror world here. We're not in some haunted house. We're not in Poe po uh, land. We're not in Stephen King land. right? This is La La Land, right? This is right. um this place is I mean, it's beautiful, right? It's a it's a beautiful setting. I would love a piece of property like that. <laughs> beautiful house. Supposedly quite far yeah. from all the horrors of the world, right? Nothing bad happens in these. I can just right. you can just smell like smell like the apple pie wafting from the uh the window sills. People probably don't lock their doors here. Yeah. Um People don't get murdered here, right? Or do they, right? Uh, in, in our story, obviously, this is um, exactly where these horrible acts mm-hmm. take place. And uh, what I think is interesting is that it's not only where it takes place, but who these people are, right? These, these people are, uh, that, I guess that's their smokescreen, right? That's their uh, their disguise. Um, they voted for Obama twice. They they would have voted for him a third Thank time. You know, they they have all um, these have are all progressive liberals. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're they're beautiful, wonderful people, right? Um, but that's exactly what they want want you to think, right? It's all it's all a mirage, a smokescreen. It reminds me of um a very different kind of story, but it, it's similar in the fact that you know it just the have right, you ever see uh, or read the book, um, short story rather, Mars is Heaven by mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury? Okay, well, it's, it's kind of dated because it, you know, it's about these astronauts that go to uh, Mars and they discover that it's actually occupied. It's, it's, col- it's colonized. But when they start exploring, they notice that everything looks familiar to them. It looks like Earth. And before they know it, they find themselves in old familiar places from their youth. Um, in fact, they see houses from then they see their, their house that they grew up in. They, they, start seeing people that they loved and who have passed away. Mom, dad, grandma. And before you know it, they're kind of kids again, they're being tucked in by their, by their mothers who have died. Pre- but when it's all said and done, it was all a, uh, a way to lure them in and kill them. <laughs> I'm not doing the story any justice, but it's just giving you that, you know, the, sometimes um, the threat is, is not immediately seen and in this story. But with that said, it doesn't take long when we're within this world where something uh, obviously is, is quite wrong and quite amiss. And our, pro- our protagonist is very perceptive and he, he sees it right away. And I guess my question back to you guys is, when do you think he starts feeling a bit, okay, um, something's off here. I, I I don't like it here. <laughs> um, I feel threatened.
2: That's, that's a great question because he he's always, he's got a little bit of uh, cautionary radar up right from the mm-hmm. start. He knows that he's going to be going into a place that he's going to be making everyone go out of their way to make him feel comfortable, which will in turn make him feel uncomfortable. And I think this is this is where it verges into satire where, you know, what, what if all of your most paranoid feelings were real? Yeah. What if there really was some stuff? And so, yeah, it's a great question, Bill. You know, when, when is the moment when he starts to think, this is beyond normal, normal compensation. This is beyond normal. And I I think, I think part of it is when he starts to see um, the two servants, the uh, the man chopping wood and, and the woman with the tea, and he tries to, Engage with them, and they are just so off. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it goes from his normal uh,
1: perception of, you know, of things, and eventually it goes from that. Like, for example, you know, the um, the fact that he is being overly questioned by the cop. You know, he's yeah. That's that's something that he he lives he lives with. He knows um and sadly probably expects right okay. uh, unfortunately
2: and, and i want to talk about that scene in a yeah. minute
1: yeah sure but then at some point um it, it, it goes from it goes from that to okay now this is getting effed up here and i'm just wondering where the effed up moment uh so would it would it be um well like you said well the uh the employees there the 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 workers um, who just are just, (laughs) I don't know how to describe them,
2: just. uh, They're mechanical in in almost every way. It's hard to say because, you know, he layers it on so nicely. Everything is so off and so strange. And yet it's one of those things where if you shook your head and go, no, I'm just being paranoid. Yeah. What is it? I mean, you know, he goes out in the middle of the night for a cigarette, the guy runs right at him and then peels off. And then there's the party where everyone is, Having strange conversation, I, maybe that's it. Maybe it's at the party where he sees the guy that was abducted. He doesn't realize who he is at the time, but um, and, and then you know that just goes bizarrely awry at that party. Yeah, yeah. I,
0: I, for me, it was there. There are a lot of little details that that Peel puts in place, even from the very beginning when. When he 's packing to go, and, and Rose is saying, "Are you, you know, do you make sure you've packed everything?" She's almost playing that mother role to him, right? a, a, a kind of protector, which you know a, a couple of scenes later, with the police officer, she plays again. You know It's a role that, that she's very comfortable playing, almost as if she's the hero of, of that particular piece. She saves him from getting a ticket, and perhaps even worse. But she says uh, something very, I think interesting early on. He said, "So do your parents know or something to that effect?" And she kind of plays dumb. Uh, and he said, you know, do they know I'm black? And, and she said, no, does it matter? You know, what should I, should I tell them? And then, you know, she says something, uh, you know, a, a little bit ambiguous after that. And then he asked her, you know, so you've never had another black boyfriend? I'm the, the only one. And she, you know, she confirms that. And of course, things for me begin to to be perceptively different from that moment on.
2: Yeah.
1: That really struck me, that question that he asked her. Do, do, do they know? Yeah. In that scene, I, and I said to myself, I've, I've obviously, have never had to ask that question, you know, and, and it's just, it's just amazing to me. I've never had to, you know, and I just that sort of made me think. And, and, yeah, we obviously know that she's lying later on in the film, and that's really when I, that's probably when we first start saying, oh, her too,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, unless there's something earlier with her. And you're right, like you go back and see this a second time, you start seeing things that were you know sort of foreshadowing but you didn't know until, unless you like you know he he motion or he makes a reference to the basement yeah when he walks in so you know he says something oh the that's the basement but we i forget what he, he said, said. We he don't... said there's black mold down there so even that is yeah. you know i
0: mean he's he's setting this up uh and, and, yeah. and that that struck me as a little you know feels reaching a little bit there with, with that um yeah. but it, you know it was
1: yeah yeah so, so I think, um, Edwell, I'm sorry.
2: I was gonna say, think about that scene where they hit the deer. Uh, to me, that's that's where I really began to notice how complexly layered the film was going to be, especially on the second viewing. You know, they hit the deer, which is one of the few minor jump scares yeah. in the film, but then you get out and you have that scene where he walks into the woods and he sees the deer and a scared, wounded deer making just horrible noises, and then the cop questioning him and then his girlfriend stepping in which she thinks she's doing him a favor when he realizes that could really escalate this into much worse and so you know he'd rather say whatever let's get it over with and move on but she you know she's going to confront it in confrontation to him and so the level of dread in that thing in that scene uh, coupled with the fact that he wanted a cigarette and he didn't get one they hit the deer he hears the you know horribly wounded deer he's dealing with the cop there's just so many layers of uncomfortableness in that scene and and you know the the deer was horrifying and and i just loved that he was able to put all those elements together and he, he does that throughout the film really and the deer is connected
1: the deer is connected with the death of his mother
2: yeah
1: right so um that's an interesting you know, uh, metaphor or, his, you know, his compassion for that deer, I think is very much tied to that. Um, so yeah, I, again, it, we, we've said this several times, but I've seen this twice, um, this sustains several, several viewings, and uh, I do think it's, I was talking to um, a colleague of ours, we're gonna probably work this into our uh, film studies curriculum, uh, I think it's a it's that noteworthy of a of a film, and I think that what one thing the deer scene does do too is, it, again, it t- it takes us again out of that romantic comedy. Um, just as a just as a device, you know, it sort of remind us, okay, don't get too comfortable in this, uh, you know, this this groove we're in. This 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 is not a romantic comedy. That as you said, Walt, it's a jump scare. So it sort of pulls you back into okay please be unsettled. Don't be comfortable because <laughs> worse is yet to come. <laughs> and there are little moments
0: throughout the film that are just like that, where it is uncomfortable to watch as if you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're almost a voyeur looking at these people's lives. And, and yep. for me, the, the next scene where it gets really uncomfortable is not so much when he first meets the parents. Although, you know, obviously the father is trying <laughs> way too hard. Uh, it's when the brother comes into play oh gosh, and there's yeah. something so just off-putting about i, I mean uh, it's a wonderful sort of testament to that actor's ability to play that part so well yeah. but i really wanted to punch him i mean <laughs> it, it, right at the get-go that this was an annoying little pipsqueak uh-huh
2: yeah so he was right on the edge of where he could be you know an entertaining guy versus right. something much worse
0: it's those people that drink too much at a bar, and it starts to get nervous. You you get nervous yeah. about yeah. where is this going to go.
1: I, I I started. I think another thing that sort of put you back on edge is when um, they started questioning him uh, in his smoking habit. Yeah. They they were uh, uncomfortable. I mean, I, I don't expect any parent necessarily to be overly thrilled with a uh, a boyfriend that's. That smokes, but it's, it's they were <laughs> they were quite nasty about it and yeah. um, a bit vicious, especially when she's along with him. Right later, I forget exactly when that happens, but she she was um, she was kind of going for the jugular there, you know. She um, she's the uh, for me in the film
0: she's the great manipulator, with the possible exception yeah. of Rose, the girlfriend. Um, it's the mother who is particularly sinister.
1: Well, to the point where she hypnotizes, you know, it's
0: pushes him. She pushes him into the abyss with a silver, with a silver spoon, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, with with the tea and, Uh, you know, that scene I think is, is so brilliantly played. Um, you know, Daniel Koloa plays that really, really well. Um, it's the, it's one of those times in the film where he shows a lot of emotion. Some of the things I've read kind of took him to task for not being as emotional as he could have been playing that role. But I thought he played it brilliantly throughout, and oh, and it wait. made that scene that much more poignant for me.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
2: I, why, I, think I think his guardedness is is part of his character. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yep. Yeah. So why do you think?
1: Why do you think the um the sinking in motif there, like the fact that he sinks in? Am I remember that correct? Correctly. Yeah. Um, during the process of um, the strange hypnosis. Yep. Yeah. What would you say that represents? I mean, what happens there? Um, it's the sinking in, uh, into the consciousness,
0: right? Yeah. Because illusion is, is later said, well, you're going to be there somewhere. It'll be small and, and, and barely perceptible, but there'll be a sliver of you somewhere within, within your brain. Um, so he sort of, he falls into himself and is unable to get out. And and it becomes not only confining and and claustrophobic, but he's unable to move. If if we remember what some of the other characters said, you know, that the, the the art dealer whose name I forget says, you know, I'll be able to control your movements. Um, you know, it's it that'll be all me and, and, and things like that.
1: Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. That was I think a very interesting, cleverly written character there, the art dealer who can't see. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Right. Steven Root, gotta love Stephen, the actor. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, right. yeah. That's he's right.
2: in everything. Uh, he steals everything he's ever in. Yeah. Uh, he's That's fantastic. Fine. I want to uh, go back to, we were talking about comedians directing and Andrew had made the observation of, you know, Lear, uh, the fool in Lear being one of the wisest characters. The fool in this film, the TSA agent is the wisest character. That's right. He knew from the get-go, get out. Good point.
0: <laughs> get out. <laughs> and and he's, he's the sort of the comedic, you know, uh, relief for this. But you know, I think that actor is, he was just as good. You know, he was—he was really fantastic. Yeah, yeah, He Comes and he saves the day. You know, he somehow he finds the courage not to let to let uh, Chris Washington go, and and, and he gets him. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No, he's fantastic. I mean, I don't think this film was ever in danger of being heavy-handed at all. But I think he played a that character played a significant role in it. So, it's a very serious message obviously, but it just comes across so subtly. And as we said before, sometimes comedy is, even dark comedy is often the best way to communicate that, that message. And I think he is a, is a key character in that.
2: So what do you guys think about, so in the end, you know, the, the parents are worried about the daughter having a boyfriend who smokes, but in the end, when it's all played out, they are literally sending her out mm-hmm. to troll for black men develop a relationship with them have sex with them dozens of times just to bring them back so that they can you know co opt their bodies and take over their brains i mean they're they're literally allowing their daughter to do the very, very thing that they themselves might be repulsed by but that's it isn't it that i mean what you just said is
0: the entire crux of this film that they see that the these young black men and women as as just really as bodies, as something to inhabit. So if Chris smokes, that means he's damaging his body, that there's this potential of of damaging his body because we know that smoking is not good for us. So they see him as it, it, almost like a product, and, and and he's damaging the product that way. That's how I took
2: it. Do you think yeah. the father brought in the housekeeper? I mean, there's, they seem to be sending, you know, um, Catherine Keener's character is the hypnotist, but... Right. You know the the daughter brings in the young virile black males but somebody brought in the the female housekeeper yeah uh you know where who else is involved in the trolling for people right scam it's you know the the fingers that snake out of this are just just horrifying to contemplate
1: it's okay so refresh your memory who is um whose brain is in the
2: young housekeeper She's older it? she's, she's more. What did you say middle aged
0: Yeah, was, it's it's the mother, isn't it? The the Bradley Whitford's mother, the the father, Rose's father's mother and father uh, yeah. inhabit. If if I well, she
2: calls them,
1: She calls her grandma, right? Yeah, Rose does. Yeah, Rose does. Yeah. So
2: yeah, okay. So the father is in, or the grandfather is in the the groundskeeper. That's right. Of chopping wood, and sure. the grandmother is in the housekeeper.
0: This, this struck me as, and, and I, I don't want to keep harping on this point, perhaps I am because of the time that we're living in, but there seems to be in this film, a, you know, a, a commentary on almost, not almost, a white need for immortality. That this is something that, that white people are really, really obsessed with. Of Not only of, of let's talk about, you know, handing our houses and, and, and everything else down through the generations, but this takes it to a completely different level. Um, that this is a way for these these group of white people, and one Asian, by the way, right, who was at the party, to to gain a, a kind of immortality.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's white privilege, at, you know, at, at, at its most extreme, where it's, okay, we have all this, we have, you know, the, the greatest jobs in the world, the greatest opportunities, the greatest house, greatest property, but what else can we have? Right. What else, are we, what else are we entitled to? Right. Oh, perhaps, um, you know, eternal life or, or you know, it's kind of like um, it is, it is, you know, human nature, but I think in this, in this particular instance, um, you know, a, a white privilege thing where it's like, okay, what else can I have? What else can I get?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I need more. Can I live longer? Can I can I uh, can I sustain all this that I have? Can I keep it? Can I hold on to it? And you know that's that's it. that's a human condition, right? It's yeah. it's how can I uh, you know I've 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 gotten to this point, but where you know how can I how can I
2: sustain it? Well, think, it, think about this, you know, if you trace back the the history of, of racist thought in America to to the <laughs> enslavement is, is saying you know the, the black people were intellectually inferior and so you can almost see the thought process feeding these people whereas you know we have great brains and they have great physicality you know you, there's a scene where uh, bradley whitford's character is talking about jesse owens and how mm-hmm. he stood up to hitler and all that so we're, what if we took our brains and put them into their physiques you know yeah and you can just see that and obviously that's not true but um you know, you, you can see the idea that, you know, there's so many black athletes and so many black people that are so physically you know in shape. We could create, it's, it's a bizarre version of the master race where it, it it's, we don't really have a problem with your color. We, have, we have a problem with what we feel is you being inferior. And so we're going to put our intellect into your physical bodies and become, you know, somehow perfect. It's just so twisted.
1: It is. And um, you know, I, I think we're we're meant to almost view this as kind of like, um, even though we buy into the story, we're we're we buy into the, um, you know, the the reality of this world within this world. I, I think there's also kind of like a, um, I don't know, a, a what's the word I'm looking for? A fable, kind of a a fable kind of quality to it where, uh, you know, obviously everything's sort of exaggerated. And uh, and I think that's why it works well within the horror genre, yeah. because we allow that ex- exaggeration within, as long as it's told with, you know, an element of horror, obviously horror, comedy, et cetera. So we, we very much buy into it. What do you think about, okay, so the scene at the party where uh, the flash goes off, mm in the um I forget the character's name, the young man with the hat and the suit. He, Andre Logan King is the character. Okay. He, he totally freaks out. Yep. What, what what do you make of that? What's what's going on there? <laughs> is 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 the flash sort of a uh I don't know. Is he is he reminded momentarily? Is there something go off in his head that reminds him of the horror that it...
2: That's the sort of the Deus ex Machina because in the end, when he's on the road and and the, the groundskeeper has the gun on him, and he flashes him with the camera, and the guy regains enough control yeah. of his own body to kill himself. That's right. That's which right. Which I love that look on his face. Not I didn't love that he killed himself. I'm sorry, right. <laughs> but the look on his face of that total defiance, like I have this one, like maybe two second window of opportunity to get my revenge, and he he does it. And, and well, so I think that's, uh, it's a little, like I said, it's a little deus ex machina sort of, but it's the, the conceit that I guess it interrupts the brainstem enough for a momentary return to who you were.
0: It's a flash yeah. of thought too. I think we have to think that flash as that kind of ultimate metaphor, right? So when the flash goes off, it's also the flash of consciousness that comes back. It's there that momentary return um and and of course for me that was a great scene because that's that's explains the title too right when when he when he's going after him saying get out get out get out
1: right right no i think i think it hits it on the head i think um you know obviously we're not meant to discuss and analyze the science of that we just got to accept that 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 flash somehow triggers something um as you said some consciousness some self-realization that's been taken away, been ripped away, it comes back somehow with that. Actually, it reminded me a little bit of, um, that's a an important motif, not motif, but an important moment in Hitchcock's Rear Window uh, at the end where uh, Jimmy Stewart's character uses the flash to <laughs> to blind um, the murderer there. Um, but in this case, it does the opposite. It enlightens rather than blinds. So I thought that was interesting. I felt really that my, my heart went out to that particular character. He just, um, you know, he, the, the actor just, just played it so well, you know, just yeah. so much sympathy.
0: It took me a few moments to realize that that was the same character that was in the beginning of the film. Um, yes. You know, I, I didn't realize that at first. Cause I, mean, think I think that's the power did, of the actor.
2: Yeah. Because he shows himself being totally cowed by being inhabited by this right. elderly man. Right. Yep. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Andrew. No, no,
0: that, I, yeah, that's, that's right. So, you know, and I think that, you know, and he plays such a straight laced sort of the language, everything is completely artificial.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. It's
0: almost artificial to the point of being dated, you know, the, the language
2: that they're using. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to get to my one uh, thing that I don't care for, uh, but every great horror film to me has a leap in logic. Um, you know, in The Walking Dead, uh, is never quite sure how the disease is transmitted because they they get it if they're bitten, but they re- reach into the dead bodies of the zombies and don't turn. In Frankenstein, you know, the creature wanted him to make a mate, and Frankenstein's worried that they could repopulate the world with monsters, but he could easily have made the mate sterile with his... Uh, so in this one, it's the um, uh, the hypnotism. When, when, when she goes to hypnotize him and she says something like, oh... You're, you you know hypnotism from what you've seen on TV it doesn't work like that and then it proceeds to exactly work like that <laughs> right <laughs> but again i i you know it's it's not a deal breaker for me for the film it just made me chuckle that it's uh it was um it was a trope that you know they they yeah. leaned heavily on to make the film work but again it doesn't it doesn't take me out of the film i just I should mention it, Jordan Peel right. if you're listening.
1: <laughs> no, I think I think hypnotism is a wonderful um, plot device that really comes in handy with writing quite a bit, and uh, I can think of several films where hypnotism is is used in a way that it's almost used as magic in, yeah. in a lot of cases. <laughs> but exactly. Oh, stop! <laughs> right. So. Um, yeah, but again, in this world, in this particular world of this film, I think it uh, it really works because we're we're obviously meant to suspend our disbelief in many different areas. It's just such an absurd thing that happens, but the absurdity of what happens is supposed to point to and remind us of something that's very real, and that we we've seen and um, you know. It, and, you know, sometimes an ex- sometimes exaggeration, um, hyperbole, how we want to put it, can really just just show us a lot of, you know, reality.
0: For me, that's the whole point of art. It's not necessarily how realistic it is, but it's how it can bridge that gap between, as you said yourself, uh, the absurd and and, and realism. And, and I yeah. think this film does a really remarkable job doing that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, there, there are there are moments where it reminds me a lot of a lot of other films too, especially that party scene. All I could think of when, when he goes upstairs, when Chris goes upstairs and everybody stops talking and they're looking upstairs. it it, for me, it was very Polanski-esque, you know, in the sense of Rosemary's baby in that sense of they're bringing somebody into this smaller community. Uh, And I mean that by the way, in, in the, in the
2: most complimentary fashion. Yeah. 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 So I, have a, I was reading um, on the Internet Movie Database page that that Jordan Peele said, you know, he would do a sequel if he could top the original. Yeah. And I'm I'm almost thinking I, I'd hate to see a sequel. Um, yeah, leave it alone. They, they would make a lot of, you know, maybe not him, but maybe make a lot of mistakes that, you know, everything in this film is so balanced. There's not too much of, of anything. You know, the comic relief character who ends up saving the day in the end, the the foreshadowing, the metaphors none of it is jammed down your throat. It's really done in, in sort of a, a very masterful way. And, and yet, you know, the sequel, you know, more bodies, higher action, bring the comedy, more to the forefront. I don't see where they could go with it. Right. To, to take a quick, a, a quick sort of
0: step back, I think this would be a good moment. Um, according to the internet <laughs> uh, movie database, so here are the numbers, which I'm always fascinated by. Um, so Peele made this film for around four and a half million dollars, which is, you know, it's pretty cheap. Yeah, uh, not a, not a lot of money for that. So it's opening weekend in the United States. It, it made thirty three million three hundred seventy seven thousand dollars. Uh, wow. And then cumulative worldwide growth so far is two hundred fifty six million eight hundred and ninety dollars, two hundred thirty one. So it really was a, a
1: mega hit. Yeah, that was, um, I think $4 million would, uh, wouldn't cover the catering budget of most uh, Marvel right. films, you right. know. Right. Um,
2: well, you know, horror films are always, you know, you know, people say you want to break into films, right, a horror film, because yeah. they, they, even the bad ones make money. Right. And, and, right. and yet this one was so well done, you know, and that the, the numbers speak for how it was taken. I mean, it ends up being Best Picture. It yeah. didn't win, did it? it? It did
0: not. It won one uh, Academy Award, and that was for right. Best Original Screenplay.
2: Well, oh, that was deserved, but they, you know, wh- wh- who beat it for Best Picture? I mean, I know the, the Academy's not the, the be-all and the end-all. I
1: can't remember. 2017?
2: Yeah.
0: Well, that's when it came out, so.
2: I'm going to, uh, I'm going to Google it quickly while we're talking. Uh, pardon me to our listeners out there. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, just th- this film does not look like a $4.5 million film. No, no. It's no, it
0: doesn't. it's really polished the cinematography is is i think uh, so one of you said this early on it, it this doesn't feel like a first film in, in any
1: way um, it make it would make me think that a lot of the actors took um cuts, you know yeah. union minimum right to but yeah i mean it really shows us that you you know you don't need um you know, hundred million dollars to make a good movie. You know, in right. fact, um, I would say the opposite.
2: So here's, here's what it was up against for 2017. A pretty good, pretty good uh, for the most part, not entirely a pretty good uh, slate. Get out lady bird, call me by your name. Uh, Dunkirk three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which was a great film. Uh, the shape of water, what? the phantom thread, the post I think it was Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep film and yeah. darkest hour
1: shape um, of water one, right?
2: Shape yeah, of water. Which, yeah. The worst film of the whole list. <laughs> you saw it by the way.
1: I mean, I think it was a great year for films. You know, I, a lot of those, a lot of those films could have, could have easily won in my yeah. mind. But yeah,
2: We all went to see the phantom thread together. Didn't That's we? right. Yeah.
1: By the way, I, I did watch that a second time since that quite recently. And, uh, I must say, yep, it gets better. It's, um, but that's another podcast <laughs> that's another podcast yes, let's, let's give you a, know, one of the
0: things that that keeps coming up in, in these <laughs> podcasts and it may be it kind of i'm sure it's not unique to us but it, it really seems to be coming back the films that we really like and we really are doing just podcasts on the films that we that mean something to us um all of these films weren't at least a second or third or repeated viewings in that sense is that the hallmark of a great film that you have to watch it more than once, or one of the hallmarks, I should say?
1: More than once, yeah. Um, I do understand, though, that there are some great movies that um, you may not be totally, you know, chomping at the bit to uh, to throw on when you're, you know. So I, I do some. I do think some great films are. It's it, it could be heavy lifting, you know. It could not necessarily be. Uh, entertaining but it's you know like like off you know some great books you know some great books aren't necessarily page turners, um and you don't necessarily always go back or want to go but you you will you but but i i do believe like any like any great work of art in order to get the most out of it you have you have to watch it again and again and again and you'll see something new every time yeah
2: i i think i i sort of agree with that but i think there's a lot of films i've watched that i've enjoyed that i don't feel particularly compelled to see again i saw yeah. it i'm done but these films, and, and I'll echo what Bill said, great art continues to reveal itself, you know, and, and continues to mean something different when you watch it 10 years from now, 15 years from now. It, it, it's not necessarily a time capsule. It might be about something specific to a time, but it's universal. And again, you watch it again and you continue to see something else that just, you know, ca- surprises you. Uh, yeah. And, and to me, that's what the mark of a great film is. And I think that's what all these films... As you said, Andrew, have in common. We 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 love them, and we would watch them repeatedly without any qualms.
0: Let, well, let me let me follow up with that. Then, let's say twenty years from now, is this film going to be just as as you know as powerful? Do you think it's will it last? Will it will it hold up?
1: I believe it will. Um, I mean, I guess you can never tell. Um, I don't see anything in it that will. Um, that, that dates it at all, I mean i the message I think will always be relevant, yeah um and I, I that's that's I think the key is if a film has something universal and powerful to say that doesn't sort of attach itself to one particular time and place, that's why you see you know some films you know do get data because they they really sort of addressing not just films but books or plays where it's sort of addressing a very specific instance i mean you can address a specific instance but i i do think that you know some of the you know the themes the the thematic power needs to transcend and hold true regardless of time place mm-hmm. um and i do i do think that this film does um have that
2: hold up yeah i would agree i mean i I think that um there's always going to be a sense that this film while racism is a key element in what makes it work if it's not the only element that makes it work and and so any anybody you know you you could say that it doesn't matter if he's black and they're white It, it it's that he's young and strong and they want his body yeah you know you can look at it that way as well and i think you know in 20 years let's hope much sooner than that we've advanced as a society so far that we don't have to march for equal rights and we don't have to uh, say black lives matter because they, you know, that's all been fixed. I still think it's an effective film.
1: Yeah. Here's here's a very interesting quote guys um, from the guardian about this film. The villains here aren't Southern rednecks or neo-Nazi skinheads or the so-called alt-right. They're middle-class white liberals The kind of people who read read this website. (laughs) Um, The kind of people who shop at Trader Joe's, donate to the ACLU, or would have voted for Obama a third time if they could. The thing that Get Out does so well, and the thing that will rankle with some viewers, is to show how, however unintentionally, these same people can make life so hard and uncomfortable for Black people. so I just, I just think, um, you know, great art will, uh, will expose some of those things that aren't quite as obvious, you know, that maybe a, a less skilled writer or director would just paint with a hugely broad, broad brush that announces something that's quite obvious. Yeah. You know, this points to something that's not so obvious. Yeah, this film, this film
0: could have been sabotaged in any number of points. Where it could oh, have yeah. gone downhill fast, and and I think he always maintains from the first moment to the last moment a, a certain kind of integrity uh, in this film. And that's hard to do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
2: it's hard to do in a genre that doesn't get enough respect. I mean, you could look at it as a satire, you could look at it as a horror film or a thriller. Right. None of those are genres that really, very rarely do they make us go, hmm. Right. You know, and and this one does definitely. <laughs>
0: I think this is really an intellectual film though. It, you can watch it on many different levels. You can watch it and just have fun with it. And, and but then, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you can watch it and really think about it. And, and the messages, because I do think there are more, there is more than one message of yeah,
2: what it is. It's, same with Parasite. When we, same when with Parasite.
1: We did. Yeah. You can almost make the argument that the greatest art does that. The greatest right. art entertains. It's compelling. It's f- fun in a way, but it's not homework, yeah. you know, um, let's, you know, with music, you can point to, let's say, uh, um, the Beatles, right. One reason why they're so universally appealing and timeless for many people is that, they, you know, their music is catchy, fun, melodic on one level, but extremely deep. If and the, the depth is there too. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think some of the greatest art does that. It's, it has that universal, I'm not saying that I mean I think there's great art there that is pretty you know esoteric and and difficult and not necessarily i mean you know obviously there's a whole we can name many things right now, but i think there there is some art that's just so appealing um and as you said, you can just sort of take it in as just a sort of horror film thriller and but it's intellectual at the same time as you said so yeah. I'm
0: I, I, watching this and, and through our discussion, I'm reminded of what Umberto Eco said about books. And he said, you, you read a, a book the first time to find out what happens. And then you read it a second, third, and fourth time to find out why those things happen. Yeah. And I think you could apply that logic very well to the films that we've been talking about through, you know, the entire spectrum
1: of our podcast. Exactly. Yeah,
2: Take Shakespeare. Just, yeah.
1: Shakespeare is a wonderful experience. Shakespeare had something for... <laughs> you know the 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 lowly groundlings who were there, you know they there was fart jokes, right. but right, right, but some of the deepest, most poignant observations of the human condition are there as well. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, if we listen to Harold Bloom, you know it's Shakespeare c- created the human, you know the, our conception of what a modern human being is There
1: is an argument to be made there, he, you know the human personality, right right right. It did not. <laughs> let's um. Let's talk for a few minutes because I really like the scene
0: that not the final scene, the operation scene, <laughs>
1: um.
0: Because you know, and again, I keep making these references to other films, but for me, it's a lot about connecting the dots. And and one of the things that makes a film uh, particularly stand out for me is if I if it reminds me of another film, and it reminded me of some of those old Hammer films with Peter Cushing. You know, where he takes the bloody brain out of, a, uh, you know, the porcelain white bowl. And it, it's almost like that where, you know, you see him cut into the back of the art dealer's head and, you know, you know something is going to happen. For me, that's when it gets a little cheesy. But, and again, I mean that in the best possible sense. I love yeah. that scene
2: because it yeah. took me
0: right back to a, to a childhood uh, memory of watching those Hammer films on, on Saturday afternoons.
2: Yeah, uh, and it cracks me up too that when he does finally start getting his revenge on this family, he stabs one guy to death with deer antlers, right. and yeah. smashes the brother over the head with a bocce ball. Yeah, two things that you are going to find in some upper middle class white guy's house, right? And, <laughs> you know that and he uses it.
0: That set is magnificent, right? Because in in one room we have Chris Washington, who's who's kind of taped to to that chair, that club chair. Um, and it, all around, there's a foosball table. I think there's, there might be a pool table. It's very sort of suburban and, and you know, middle class. And it, it's, you know, there wasn't black mold. It's a really, really nice family room. Uh, and then in the other room, down this really magnificent hallway is the operating theater.
2: Hey, that was my other plot hole, though. How does he get the chair cotton in his ears so he doesn't get hypnotized?
0: He bites it, doesn't he? Well, he, I, yeah, you're right. are, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're, you're right. Or the chair.
2: And again, it doesn't kill it for me. But uh, I, I was like, wait a minute. But, <laughs> but you're right. You're right, though. That's it's great. It's such a great uh, and I like the fact that they're showing him the video of the uh the program. Yeah. Um, on a what's clearly an old VHS tape, and on like the oldest TV I've ever seen still operating, and, and yet it it just goes to you know, why, why that, why not show it on a DVD on a flat screen? Because it just shows the, the, the length of time this has been happening. Yeah. We haven't even bothered to change our presentation program. Right. And
0: it starts with the grandfather, I think, if I remember correctly.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the younger versions of Keener and, and yeah. Riley Whitford. Uh, yeah, Oh yeah. And how long has been going on?
1: I would love a uh, podcast on As a side note here, a podcast on plot holes of great films. (laughs) Like how does, uh, Andy Dufresne put the poster back up in, um, Shawshank Redemption.
2: Yeah. That's an easy one. I got that one fixed.
0: (laughs) Crip supervisor. Yeah. Right. Um, if you want to see a podcast on potholes, a plot holes, let us know.
1: And and,
2: and,
0: who
1: opened opened Michael Corleone's curtain in Godfather (laughs) two for the assassination attempt.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. But, um, <laughs> so um, what do you make of the fact that, that Peel uh, made uh, Chris Washington a photographer? And I don't necessarily mean that as his profession, but obviously he's good with a camera, he takes photos, he has a talent for it.
2: Yeah, the, the sh- opening shot is the, their apartment that he's sharing, and there's his photographs. Right, and right the, the be blind art dealer wants his
1: eye yeah yeah i mean could it be as simple as they needed someone with a fl- you know flash camera i mean i it's mean convenient, right right you know i I think it works plot- i mean I, I just think um sometimes the you know occam's razor right the uh most simple explanation is the right one but
2: Yeah. It doesn't mean maybe there's not a metaphor there, but, but it does, you know, he's obviously artistic. So he's, he's on the radar of this wealthy white girl. He's on the radar of this art dealer. Um, It allows him to see things that he might not normally see with the naked eye Mm. and record it. So um, I think it just, I think it just, again, it's one of those things that I think Peel is doing. that's not, it's not overdone.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: So uh, another
0: scene I'd like to sort of briefly tackle is is the scene with the keys um, when he when he when he finds out that you know this is going back a little bit now uh, in, in the plot um, but you know when he when he wants to get out of the house and and he's you know asking Rose to come with him and he's asking him for the keys he's getting more and more agitated right because he knows something bad is going to happen if they stay there and she can't find those keys and you know for me not knowing what was going to happen that first time, really, really uncomfortable uh, to watch. Um, What did did you make of that scene? Uh,
2: I have uh, cats, and they like to catch mice, and they like to play with them before they kill them. Mm -hmm. And they get a great amount of satisfaction out of that. And it's horrifying.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense to me, but I'll tell you, um, she... I mean, what a performance by her! I mean she just seems like such a uh, cool fun um, person to be with you know a great girlfriend for half of the film and uh ob- obviously more than loathsome mm-hmm. event you know have you have you ever turned on a character so so right. much in, in a film lately it's just it's uh I think it was a very interesting performance by her.
2: There's a nice detail about her. She eats Fruit Loops one at a time, and she looks at each one before she eats it. And here's the thing: Fruit Loops are different colors, but they all taste the same.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and I just think that's just a beautiful detail. Yeah, it <laughs> really.
0: <I like> that. <laughs> yeah, so Rose Armitage is played by uh, you know wonderfully by Allison Williams. Um, who, if I remember correctly, really came to fame with, with the HBO series Girls, uh, Lena Dunham's uh, show. She was one of the cast members on, on that show. Very different character, so it does show her range uh, and, and able to play uh, a sort of variety.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I've seen her before. Anything.
2: I've, never, yeah, I've never seen Girls.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, you know, it's, it, I, she becomes so, you know, one of you said it loathsome at the end of this film um that you know you're rooting for her to get to get shot
2: (laughs) (laughs) sorry to say that way
0: and i of course i mean that just in the cinematic sense.
2: oh yeah i mean she does and and it's very satisfying in that she lives long enough to see it all fail yeah right right and her grandfather
1: she still tries she still tries to manipulate to the very end
2: very end oh
1: you know and uh was he was he almost taken by that Was there a sense of hesitation there, do you think? I mean, I I don't quite remember myself.
2: I didn't get that. No, you know, he'd had it by then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you watch, um, if you streamed the film, I I, I re-rented it the second time I saw it on Amazon Prime, and uh, there's an alternate ending, the original ending. No kidding. Yeah, it's just a couple of minutes, and and then then, um, Peel comes on and talks about it. And so basically uh, he's in jail hmm. and the TSA agent comes to talk to him. You know, he's been convicted for all the murders and he, he wrote in the say, he just exits in, you know, into the jail. But, but Peel said he thought that, you know, he, he didn't help his mom, but he went back to try to help the housekeeper. Yeah. And therefore he, he gets redemption. And so he becomes a martyr. I like the ending they went with instead better mm. than it's still interesting. She dies, right? Yeah.
1: So, um,
2: yeah, I think everybody dies, but him and, uh, yeah. And, and the TSA yes, his buddy.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, and it was too, too late for her. I mean, she is, she has a different brain, you know, they, so, <laughs> you know, th- there was no saving any of any of them. Um, I mean, unless, um, Again, there was something else like having to do with the flash. <laughs> yeah. so you would the, even
2: assume uh, Stephen Root died because they left him on the operating table with his brain hanging out. That's right,
0: right. So uh, Georgina is is the 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 maid, um, and, and she's I, I, again, I think, played wonderfully by Betty Gabriel uh, in in all a, a kind of restrained sort of uh, way she played it. But that one scene where we see the tear coming down, you know, um, where. Where he accuses her—not really accuses her, but you know about touching the phone uh, and unplugging the phone. Um, You can see that sort of character trying to come out and and not able to 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 come out.
2: Right, right, yeah. You can imagine in the rehearsals with the actors, it's like, okay, you are uh, an elderly white woman (laughs) that's been put into the body of a middle-aged black woman, yeah, and there's still some shreds of consciousness there. I mean, how does an actor, I mean, all those actors, I mean, again, good horror film, but really great acting. Yeah. You know, I mean, great horror film, really great acting. Um, Wonderful stuff.
0: I think so as well. Um, So I think we're, we're, we're wrapping up now. Uh, Any final thoughts on Get Out?
1: I'm just looking forward to seeing something new from him seeing where, what else what else he, i mean perhaps he has i mean i don't know I've, i haven't taken a look at his filmography if there's something yeah so his follow-up movie to this was uh, a film i think it's
0: called us i have not seen it yet uh and another... that has
2: gotten some buzz from what i hear yeah. it
0: is it um this year or i think it came out two years ago if i'm if i remember correctly okay
2: and I, it what? might have been just a, it might have been a streaming film i don't know if yeah. that was actually on theaters I could be wrong. I don't know, but but I know
0: it it did well and 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 it did get a lot of good buzz. So I have not seen it yet, but it, it it's certainly on my list to see. Yeah. So I think it's safe to assume that Jordan Peele has a a pretty good future in filmmaking. Um of course now he's, you know, hosting the the new Twilight Zone uh series uh on I think it's CBS streaming. Um and he's you know, got another
1: a number of projects
0: um that he's working on.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing something else from him. Okay.
0: okay, so for Walter Freeman, Bill Ivers, and myself, Andrew Martino, we thank you for listening to this version of The Classroom Critics uh, tackling uh, Jordan Peele's 2017 film, Get Out. And uh, if you like us, please follow us on, on Facebook. Um, listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And certainly we would appreciate a review. Tell us what you think. Um, If there's a film you think we should be reviewing and talking about, please let us know and and we'll try to fit that in. Um, In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you during the next film. Good night. Good night.